0: Hello everybody and welcome to today's episode of Activist Lawyer. Thank you for joining me. So today's recording comes on the back of recent slurs made against a solicitor by a British Member of Parliament, Ian Paisley Jr. Some of you might be familiar with him, some of you won't. Who a number of weeks ago sought to vilify a lawyer because of his work on Northern Ireland legacy cases. The comments were made during the consideration of the Northern Ireland Troubles and Reconciliation Bill in Parliament. Now these legislative proposals, which we've spoken about briefly before on this show, seek to deny victims and their families the right to prosecute former British security personnel and others from crimes committed during the conflict here before the Good Friday Agreement in the North. So, the comments made against the solicitor refer to him as vindictive and a snake oil salesman. We have focused on such attempts to demean, undermine and even threaten solicitors, barristers and judges working in human rights many times before in this podcast. But I'm very grateful today to have Gavin Booth, the solicitor from Phoenix Law in Belfast, who is a lawyer at the receiving end of Mr Paisley's comments, who joins me. Um, And we'll give his opinion on the matter both personally and on a wider level in terms of how language such as this can damage the profession, or seeks to damage the profession I should say, and of course undermines the rule of law. Just a little bit about Gavin. Gavin specialises in actions against the police, public law and prison law, and regularly appears in some of the most high profile actions in this jurisdiction and in Ireland. Um, His work includes those cases emanating from the period known as the Troubles, and Gavin has appeared in both the Irish Supreme Court and the UK Supreme Court. He holds a Master's in Human Rights Law and Transitional Justice and co-authored two reports with Doughty Street Chambers, the repeal of the Human Rights Act in Northern Ireland and the effect of media concentration in Ireland. He has also addressed the European Parliament in Brussels in relation to his work. Now, outside of work, we had a wee chat about this as well. Gavin is a director of Newry-based charity Davina's Arc, which specialises in addiction and aftercare. He's also a CrossFit enthusiast and enjoys walking in the Moorne Mountains, close to his native home of Warren Point in County Down. So, Gavin, welcome to the Activist Lawyer podcast and thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. Now, you just left your CrossFit training.
1: I, ha- I have, although <laughs> I would not say I'm an enthusiast. <laughs>
0: no! It sounds to me like you're you're definitely um, hooked on it. You, you seem oh, to be. a big fan of the CrossFit and I'd say with the work that you're doing and particularly now it's a good way to kind of switch off maybe
1: absolutely it's a good release to get away from everything work related
0: absolutely well look um, thanks so much again for for coming in there was an introduction there and um, I took listeners through something that has arisen in recent weeks but we're going to talk about you first and just in your own words you might take us through your work at Phoenix Law we're lucky that we've had some um, guests on before from Phoenix Law some of your colleagues have joined us um, and enlightened us um, in terms of their work their human rights work that they're focusing on so you're in a different department though from um, those that we've had on what kind of cases do you cover and can you share a little bit about your work and maybe how you got into law might be a good place to start as well.
1: Brilliant. Okay, thank you very much. Um, So Phoenix Law was established in 2018. Um, It was a number of lawyers, including Dara Mack and Sinead Marmarion, that have been on this podcast, Mm -hmm. um, who all came together. They had a keen interest in human rights and decided that we could do this job and we could do it better than um, our competitors. So we set up Phoenix Law, and from there we have grown and kept growing. Um, We now have over 30 staff um, working uh, in various departments that focus primarily on criminal law, human rights law, and historic uh, human rights abuse cases, such as redress and the Troubles.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, you yourself, then, what particular areas are you focused on? Because you have been involved in quite a lot of high profile cases recently.
1: Yeah, so um, mostly and primarily, I work on prison law actions against the police. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a lot of work on historic cases, such as cases arising from the Troubles. Okay. And I also specialise in prison law.
0: And you're—I don't—I mentioned there you had a master's, but. I suppose what started you out on your, your legal your legal journey in the first place? Why law?
1: So I suppose when we think back to the early 1990s, um, you know, I grew up in Point. Long time ago. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> it is a long time ago now. But, uh, <laughs> I grew up in Warren Point. I went yeah. to a local school. I went to St. Marks on St. Coleman's. Right, okay. here in Newry, yeah. St. Marks was in Warren Point. Um, at that stage, I had absolutely no ambition for law. I probably... Um, would have been embarrassed even to say law, given that Mm -hmm. I was not a top achiever (laughs) at school. Um, I don't think any of my teachers predicted that. In fact, one teacher who recently contacted me told me to go to the building site because I was a nuisance in school. (laughs) (laughs) And at that stage, uh, there was a lot of building jobs in Dublin and people from this border area would travel there and make a lot of money. But she thought that uh, school just wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. So um, back in those days... I had absolutely no ambition for law um, around the l- late 1990s, there was a lot of change here. You know yeah. we had the Good Friday Agreement, the introduction of the Human Rights Act. and I suppose thinking of dairy girls and looking back over that time you know in your mind, there yeah. was a lot of hope and ambition around then for That's people. Right. Yeah. you know we started to hope that we would all have a better future, that our rights, no mm-hmm. matter who we were, would be protected mm-hmm. and that we were starting a new start um, Unfortunately, now some 20 years later. Things have changed. Mm -hmm. Things have changed from the worse, for the worse. You're right. Um, You look around now and rights are being cut. Services are being cut. You know, hospitals, schools. Everybody's talking about strikes, legal aids being cut. And the most marginalised in society are suffering. So I suppose we have probably failed ourselves quite a lot, given Mm -hmm. that that we we had a lot of ambition and hope for the future and thought that actually we're going to take a step forward here and move forward positively. Um, Somewhere, I suppose, around that time... I, one, had tried to be a, uh, tried to work on the building sites with my father, um, I decided that uh, manual labour wasn't for <laughs> me. <laughs> so that was one of the, the driving forces for yeah. actually saying, do you know what, I'm maybe going to pay a wee bit more attention in school here and see where it goes. I barely passed my A-levels, um, I can't say that I was again a high achiever in St Coleman's, yeah, yeah. but I did realise that there was a renewed emphasis on education when I went there. So. It probably provided me with some sort of stepping stone towards university. Sure. There was also a, a better life at university yeah, than yeah. on a building site because you were free to do what you want. You had the autonomy for the first time living in Belfast and you lived in a place with a lot of young people and a lot of hope and a lot of change and sure. there was plenty of things, including social life,
0: yeah, yeah, to enjoy. <laughs> Throw that in.
1: I really <laughs> did enjoy the, the social aspect of school, so much so that I done three first years. <laughs> <laughs> My first... My first, first year was uh, in St Your first, first year? Yeah, so wow. I had three. Love it. So my first, first year was in St Mary's, <laughs> the teaching college in Belfast. Oh, right. So it was part of Queen's University. Yeah. And the idea then was, I thought, maybe teaching was for me. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think I lasted there two months before I dropped out. <laughs> um, it, unfortunately, it was part of the uh, Catholic school and there was a big emphasis on mass. So on Wednesday, when people were enjoying university life, the school would timetable me to go to mass on Wednesday at 2pm. Oh so I think uh, after a couple of weeks, I decided, you know, this feels a bit too much like school. When yeah. my, my friends are having fun. Yeah. And that isn't the university life <laughs> I wanted for myself. <laughs> so I quickly resigned from there, although not telling my parents for about six months after that because I was still getting student loans. Sure. So <laughs> I dropped out of that. Um, during that time then, from home. Um, and from living in Belfast I decided to do another A-level and I went back to St Coleman's part-time or at least as a, a pupil who didn't have to attend but who could self-study and then set the test through the school. Okay. So they allowed me to do a politics A-level. Right. And uh, I thankfully passed it with flying colours, uh, you know, with a keen interest in politics mm-hmm. and I found it as an easy subject to get me through and get me the additional points then to go it. to university. Yeah. Um, I went to the University of Ulster then and decided on law. I thought law was an interesting subject. Mm-hmm. You know, growing up, I suppose, around this community, mm-hmm. Newry and Morn, quite a lot of things happened here that probably shape you as an individual and you don't realise when you're growing up. You don't, no. But when you look about, you know, we had, you know, in our early childhood, we would army on the streets. We had uh, a, f- a police force that uh, local people around here were foreign. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a healthy distrust in the state, um, but there was also positive voices saying that change will happen and these changes will be good for us. So I suppose with all that going on, you know, law became a very interesting subject to me, as in how we will administer law in a place like this post-conflict. Mm-hmm. And that kind of stuff did interest me, and I started to read a lot about Irish history and history here. And, mm-hmm. and know, of course, UK your politics. History, the politics at the level, level also yeah. helped. And you were watching things and things that were happening here, including families then coming out and saying well now that there is peace we now want justice yeah and there was quite a lot of campaigns locally based and and human rights based um activities going on around this area um and we also because we're a border area had the benefit of also seeing what was going on in the south of Mm -hmm. ireland so you know there was great change there at the same time and mostly it was an economic change and things were starting to grow there but if you travel a couple of miles over the border, you would see a multicultural, multi-faith society that was so different to what we had. Um, you, were, you know, to see someone of a, a different religion mm-hmm. apart from Catholic or Protestant, obviously, outside of Nyeri and Mourn, was unique. You didn't yeah. see people of different color. You didn't see refugees. You didn't. you didn't see anybody. So you travel as far as Dundalk, which is a 10, 15 minute drive or Dublin, mm-hmm. and you were in this multicultural European society. So you're looking at that and thinking, well, why do we not have that? And so a lot of those things probably factored into going to do yeah. law and wondering, you know, why we are living in such a strange place. Mm-hmm. And I suppose our parents done a great job in shielding us from the troubles when we were children. And we didn't really appreciate True. it. You know, we played on the streets around the army. You yeah. didn't notice them. And you grew up in a society and my memories of childhood were happy. Yeah. Do you know, in the 1990s, Down was winning all Ireland. Um, mm-hmm. We were going to Dublin, you know, we were coming back. And you look around at, you know, local GAA was happening, but at the same time, people be- were being shot dead yeah. j- just around this area. So while my childhood was happy, there was people being disproportionately affected by the troubles and suffering great traumas. But yet, I can't remember, you know, hearing about these incidents and I can remember a very happy childhood. Yeah. I remember going playing football in South Armagh, being a Warren Point GA player, and helicopters overhead, and mm-hmm. they were massive. And these massive machines would come down above them, yeah. you, yeah, and you were you were you used to the hum mm-hmm. of an army mm-hmm. helicopter at night, um, and you had no fear or wonder. Although a bomb scare was an interesting thing, sometimes yeah. it became a nuisance. It uh-huh. wasn't it wasn't something to be scared of if the army were in your local town or in Yerry, You you were naturally attracted towards yeah. the bomb scare or the part that was. Cordoned off. So, as a child, you were probably unaware of the seriousness of it, but also so used to it that you didn't pay a blind bit of attention. So, all those things probably factored into me studying law and having a keen interest in it, and as well as all these talks of collusion and you know things being covered up and families not having the same access to justice as in other parts of the UK or in Ireland. So, um, they probably did. Yeah, in some way, have an effect on me and made me more interested, and in and I suppose a subconscious effect as much as a. That's conscious so interesting,
0: effect. absolutely, and I've similar memories to you, I guess, growing up in you know ten minutes down the road from from where you grew up, and um, but it's interesting how that environment shaped your decision, but also currently shaped your work very much so. So like we look back to that, you know, the Good Friday Agreement, nineteen ninety eight, and that kind of, you know, um, conflict. I suppose, as you said, it's very sad that, um, you know, there was that, um, you know, level of hope um, there, especially for young people. And um, as you said, we've sadly, you know, either not made a huge amount of progress, especially around education. And, you know, there's specific needs that you could address there. But um, there's still a very political, politically hostile environment that we live in today. And again, that plays into your work that we'll talk about a little bit later as well. Um, but yes, so you then went on to do your human rights and um, masters and uh, masters in human rights and transitional justice. Did you ever consider the corporate world at all? Or was your kind of entry into law always going to be focused on this kind of access to justice and representing people who needed a voice?
1: So after I graduated um, from my law degree, I took part in a thing called Project Children. So I flew to America to work uh, one building a house for Habitat for Humanity mm-hmm. in Mississippi following the um, Katrina uh, hurricane, yeah. so we went there for a week and we built a house for a family in need, which was a great thing to do. Following that, then I went to work for a congressman in New York called mm. Pete King. So he, at the time, he was the chair of the Homeland Security Committee. He was entirely right wing. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't want he wanted bigger borders. He wanted um, no foreigners. Yeah, but yet he was left wing on Ireland because he was here throughout the troubles. Ah. He was the only. He was the only conservative or Republican at the time that voted not to impeach... I was going to say Trump, but it was actually Clinton. (laughs) (laughs) So he voted not to impeach him. He became a big Trump fan. He was New York-based, based (laughs) based in Long Island. And his national security policies were totally an affront to anything I believed in. But yet (laughs) I was able to find common ground with him on Ireland and the issues here. And he was actually quite left-wing on, you know, his views on Ireland and the peace process and moving things forward. So that... Again, probably shaped the idea in my head that, you know, you can work with anybody, you can have opposing views, but, you know, you can find common ground somewhere. Um, I also didn't want to come back from New York after that (laughs) because, you know, you were put on a pedestal as a child of the Troubles and people were taking you to all these places like Wall Street or out to Long Island or Mm -hmm. to all these parties and events and you were being treated like a celebrity <laughs> and possibly milking your experience of the troubles in order to make sure you were getting treated like a celebrity <laughs> so I had a great time out there Sounds great. when I came back because my visa my J1 was only for a certain amount of time yeah. I then decided I would do the human rights master's Good. again okay. I don't think at that stage I'd even anticipated ever wanting to be a lawyer I, I was in my mind I was thinking I'm going back to New York yeah. <laughs> I'm not staying here you know there's nothing to offer me here like I was in Manhattan a couple of weeks yeah. ago so I had this idea well look the Masters is there I have a place I should probably do that and then take it from there um, when that happened and when I completed the Masters unfortunately the economy crashed so like me and a lot of my graduate friends mm-hmm. our Monday mornings consisted of going to Eruri dole <laughs> and <laughs> picking up our dole money um, with everybody else at the time. Yeah. Unfortunately, the economy was totally gone. There was no graduate jobs, nobody wanted anybody. You're offering to do work experience. it wasn't there. so I went from the high life in New York to Monday in to the, the dole, dole
0: office in yuri wow
1: explain <laughs> explaining how. I had looked up the newspapers and the internets and searched for jobs, but just none were for me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, so yeah. I had to be signed off <laughs> every week. So as that um, came up, then work initially started for me with a job offer in Arthur Cox, a corporate and commercial sorry, firm. Yeah. And my job title was to help in repossessions of people's properties. Hmm. So right up your street, right up my human rights based left wing, (laughs) you know, totally what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to go and then repossess people's houses for the most marginalized people Mm. in society. So I spent two years working there. I decided that I would give it a go. Mm -hmm. I would learn the processes. I would learn how to do things. I'd work in a corporate environment and I'd see how it got on. Um, After about two years, one of the managing partners or partners in the firm said to me, why do you work here? you absolutely detest banks, you're totally <laughs> left-wing, and you're not exactly the right fit for Arthur Cox. <laughs> so <laughs> with that and the renewed emphasis, I decided that, you know what, it's been two years, the economy still is mm-hmm. bad, people still aren't getting training contracts, as, you know nobody wants a paralegal, but yeah. it was time to move on. Yeah. Um, so um, thankfully I got a job then uh, in KRW Law mm-hmm. uh, as a paralegal, I started off doing the post, going yeah. and doing the basic legal aid applications, doing anything anybody wanted me to do, mm-hmm. but happy to do it. Yeah. Um. Again, paralegals were paid 12 grand back then. Do you know, not nowadays, paralegals are able to get a, a working wage. Yeah. But I started doing that and I worked my way up and I tried my best to find some sort of ground and I, I tried to use my local knowledge of people here To bring cases into the firm and slowly but surely work my way up alongside people like Dara Mackin and Peter Corrigan and learning everything I could. So I tried to be as much of a sponge as possible to learn what they were doing in order to implement that um, Mm -hmm. throughout my work. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually then I was offered a training contract and I went on and qualified um, just around 2018 and I've been qualified for five years and this year I became a partner in Phoenix Law. Congratulations.
0: That is fantastic. What a, what a journey into law. And I think a lot of people listening will probably relate to a lot of what you said there. And you've shared it very candidly. So taking a quick break here to say that I hope you're enjoying this episode of Activist Lawyer. Again, we'd be grateful if you could like, share and review the podcast. And please check out our website at www.activistlawyer.com where you will find some activist lawyer branded merchandise and some blog articles. Please tune in on Apple, Spotify or the platform of your choice for more great episodes coming soon. In that kind of short period of time since you've qualified, you have worked on very high profile cases that have made a real difference. Are you able to talk about some of the cases that you've worked on and maybe what has stood out for you? Um, I guess that's as part of your work with Phoenix, I suppose.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, um, quite a lot of my cases have come to me. quite a lot of people in the, these areas, you know, Newry and Mourne are mm-hmm. rural, and they don't have the same access to, you know, rights-based groups or they yeah. don't have the same access to other victims of the conflict because they live rural and isolated. Sure. So the one thing I could probably offer them is having a big family in South Down. Newry, South Armagh, I was able to maximise my local knowledge of people and what happened to them with what I was doing as a job. So I was able to go see them when they asked to talk about their cases mm. and I was able to then look up local things, you know, like yeah. you know, the Newry Reporter Archive, for instance, was full of information about people that were bereaved during the conflict mm-hmm. and those families were left, I suppose, outside of the, the Belfast central focus that there was on troubles-related cases at the time. And again, you'd probably find the same in Tyrone, yeah. in certain parts of Derry. But at the very start, quite a lot of cases that were moving in in the conflict or in the Troubles were Belfast-based cases because you know you had relatives for justice, you had the yeah. Papanek Centre, you had um, Wave Trauma Centre, and all those were picking up with people who were Belfast-based. Mm-hmm. And I was based here in Warm Point, in Yeri, in South Down, in South Armagh, and able to travel around those areas quite freely. Um, knowing the in- areas inside out mm-hmm. and was able to meet with local people here that also had cases so one of the cases that uh, I worked on was the murder of Lachlan McGinn he was a father of four in 1989 he lived in Riffre Island a oh. um, lot paramilitaries came to his home came through his front window and shot him dead in front of his wife and his three children uh, or four children sorry mm-hmm. um, that day uh, um, changed so much in terms of collusion probably could go down in history as one of the first collusion cases, if really? not the first. So what came after that was a series of events, including the family saying that Lachlan McGinn was at home with his family and he was innocent. Loyalists didn't like that, so they came out and said Lachlan McGinn was an IRA volunteer and we have proof. So what they'd done was then they put photo montages up around Belfast of all these people they said were Republican suspects, and that started a police investigation. Okay. It started the Stevens investigation um, and what they found was um, that there were serious allegations of collusion here between members of the UDR, Loyalist paramilitaries, and Brian Nelson, an undercover army agent at the head of the UDA. So all these events were being investigated, but nobody ever came to see the McGinn's to tell them. Right. So the McGinn's maintained Lachlan was at home with his family, he was innocent. Loyalists were saying, well, here's the proof, here's a picture of Lachlan McGinn, and a number of other Republicans that we say are in the IRA. And people were saying, well, there's something amiss here. Collusion is real. So that investigation went on and on. And in 2012, Sir Desmond De Silva released a report on the same incident, as well as on the murder of Pat Finucane. So while a lot of people will associate the De Silva report with Pat Finucane, there's an entire section of the report based on Lachlan McGinn's murder. And what it found was, uh, there was an undercover army agent at the head of the UDA. Mm-hmm. He was going around trying to incite murder on behalf of the UDA while being led from his handlers. He supplied photo montages to loyalists from the UDR. He helped loyalist paramilitaries break into UDR bases in South Down to steal photomontages. The RUC were aware of that. The RUC took no steps to stop it. The emphasis that loyalists put then on these montages because they were successfully stolen from a British army base in County Down was to then try to kill those people on them. Um, Loyalists were then also offered refuge in the UDR bases after the attacks and this is a British army base in South Down Um, and Nelson then encouraged Loyalists to kill people or that the UDR would not give them more pictures. So Lachlan McGinn was murdered by members of the UDR and Loyalist paramilitaries With the assistance of an undercover army agent. And it stinks. It stinks to the high heavens. Um, Earlier this year, the case settled. Okay. Unfortunately, we were unable to disclose the amount. Uh But I can say that the family were happy. All right. But the family still want an inquest. Mm -hmm. The family have never had an inquest because some of those members of the UDR were prosecuted. But quite frankly, it's not enough. Behind the scenes, there's so many more people Mm -hmm. responsible. His daughter, Grace, gave a speech... Um, at the doors of the court upon the settlement, and said, "We have campaigned for justice for my father now longer than he was alive. They want to know what happened to my daddy, you know. And when yeah. you hear the heartbreak of that, um, you know, Grace has absolutely nothing to do with the past. No, you know, it's never been proven that the father was in the IRA, mm-hmm. and it shows that behind the scenes that there was serious." Um, Serious collusion going mm. on between loyalists and members of the UDR. It's and like
0: the definition of collusion in that case, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and that case started so much. It started people to believe, mm. actually, there's something there was more something, going on yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. And it, it started a number of investigations, and Stevens's reports have never been published. The Families wow. still have never seen them. And Mrs McGinn, Lachlan's wife, says, to this day, no police officer has ever come to her door to tell her what happened.
0: My goodness.
1: So, with that in mind, you yeah. think that... Uh, You know, these families are entitled Mm -hmm. to something, they're entitled to some answers
0: and to, to, to justice and sadly it seems that there's many who, who want to curtail that at the moment so we'll talk about that in a little while but that type of case of course is one of many many cases all emanating emanating from you know the conflict and it just shows you that it's still going on it's still very much transgenerational in terms of the trauma and in terms of the um you know the families who want to seek justice and continue to do so and those who want an inquest you know and even at that the inquests very often are you know Traumatizing in itself because they take so long, and um, time presses on as we know. And those who maybe should have been held accountable or responsible are no longer here. Um, but your work continues in that anyway. And then, um, apart from um, those I know you worked on the Boston College tapes as well. That's an interesting one.
1: Yeah. So um, I represented a number of people um, following the disclosure of the Boston tapes. Um, that then took civil cases against Boston. Mm-hmm. The idea of Boston College initially was in order to provide an archive where people could talk freely mm-hmm. about what happened during the Troubles. You know, this is something that initially started off as a very good idea. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, it, it has been found in the Ivor Bale case, which uh, my colleague, Mr Peter Corrigan, acted for Ivor Bell yeah. in, that uh, there was some level of bias and almost a get Jerry Adams attempt by those that took part, mm-hmm. so mainstream Sinn Féin, ex-Republicans didn't take part in it mm-hmm. but initially the idea was very good to have an archive mm-hmm. where people could be open and free to talk about what happened to them and their story, free from prosecution, sure. and that is something that many families here would welcome, that upon the, those persons' deaths you know their stories there, yeah. a hundred years ago there was a quite a similar thing, which you can look up the Irish History Archives, mm-hmm. where people who were in the IRA at the time told their stories of what happened to them, and you know the events that they were involved in and they're still available on the Irish government's websites Mm -hmm. and they're such an interesting piece of our history and it shouldn't be lost and unfortunately the 30 years 40 years of the conflict will be lost here because of attempts then to prosecute those that Mm -hmm. do want to tell the truth Mm -hmm. so unfortunately in this disputed zone which is the conflict or troubles work we're going to lose a lot of information because people are afraid of being prosecuted in order to give it, give the truth Yeah, yeah. for some people who want to give the truth. But we're also going to, now with the legacy bill, stop those where their evidence does exist to prosecute them from being prosecuted.
0: Oh, gosh, and a lot of that, you know, and I'm sure your, your clients will, will talk about the legacy bill as well and how um, that will impact them. But just... A case that you are currently involved in concerns the RUC murder of IRA volunteer Colin Marks. Now, you've been acting for the Marks family, I think, since 2015, am I right? And in 2016, the police ombudsman history directorate refused to establish an investigation into the death of Mr. Marks in 1991, if I'm right. Um, But um, the absence of new information was the cited reason, I think, primarily. But a new witness came forward and there was new forensic evidence. What's happened to date with that or how has that
1: So Colin Marks uh, was a gary man Mm -hmm. from up the road uh, less than a mile from here Um, his family still live here including his mother Um, on the 10th of April 1991 he was shot and killed the RUC shot him you know that is undisputed Mm -hmm. Um, the events that led both before there and after still remain um, under investigation by the police ombudsman and we hope that she'll release a report but if we go back to the start the family came to me saying Colin Marks was shot dead. We're looking to find out all the information around it, including the prior information that led to his death and what's happened since. They believe that the officer, uh, who's known as Officer B, was not telling the truth about what happened and that Colin Marx was deliberately killed, what mm-hmm. they would say is a state execution. Mm-hmm. They believe it was targeted, it was going to happen, and there was no steps to arrest him. Colin Marks was um, 29 years old. Um, he had a wife. Um He was living in downpatrick he had moved from Newry to downpatrick, okay. and it 's undisputed that he was in the area mm-hmm. on that night he had planned to carry out a horizontal mortar. Um, we believe the target may have been RUC or Army i don't it, you know it probably would have been whoever came along first um, and that the RUC had prior intelligence about this. We know that a couple of hours before that the RUC had uh, established a number of undercover um, operatives in the area and they were watching all the events around this area of Downpatrick um, which is um, in and around the, the town of Downpatrick it's not too far from it it's one of the side roads that lead up towards the Down hospital um, we know that at uh, an, maybe an hour or two before his death that um, someone came in on a motorbike and handed over this device um, we know that the RUC watched this that they took no steps to do anything they watched Colm walk up the street with two other people. We know that those people established themselves, one at the bottom and one at the top of the street, and that this m- mortar was set up. Um, at that stage, the HMSU came in uh, to that house. Column left, ran over the back uh, fence, and took himself across a field. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that field, it's, it, it, it comes to the point of dispute. Um, there was an undercover crops officer, it's called, and a crops officer is someone who digs himself into the ditch to do mm-hmm. surveillance only. So this officer, Officer B, was the CROPS officer. Okay, His account is that he stepped out, told Column to halt, fired in the air and then fired three shots at him as he came towards him and that his life was under threat because he believed he may have been armed. We know Column Marks was not armed and we believe that the police knew prior to this that no one was going to be armed. Um, in 2015 the family came to me and the police ombudsman said that they were refusing to investigate because it previously had been investigated by the RUC. We thought the RUC investigating the RUC was mm-hmm. not a fair Article 2 compliant investigation. Yeah. So that went to court. During that then there was media coverage because you know these cases get a lot of coverage because of the history and the troubles mm-hmm. and probably because of the sector and state we live in. <laughs> um, it does you know bring up both yeah. sides and it does uh, add emphasis and the news know that it's newsworthy material mm-hmm. and that everybody has a view regardless of who they are. Um, So, during that then, new witnesses came forward and said, well, actually, I witnessed something, and I witnessed something. So, a couple of people came forward to say, I was in Downpatrick on that night, and nobody's ever taken a statement from me. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in the middle of the JR then, the witnesses took statements, gave them to the police ombudsman, the police ombudsman met with them, and they said, actually, based on this, there is something to look at here. At the same time, we um, started to get, columns closed were still intact, and the family retained those. And we sent them for forensic testing. We got our first initial forensic report. And We used a, an expert in London who would have absolutely no idea of anything here. Mm-hmm. And that expert came back and said, looking at these ent- exit marks, I believe they're entry marks. And the column was shot in the back three times. Okay. So that then gave us the idea that, you know, while we didn't believe Officer, B- Officer B's account, and we always thought that it was a predetermined issue that they were going to shoot to kill, um, this set a renewed emphasis on the case and the police ombudsman then stepped up their work. At the same time, the AG, um, the Attorney General for Northern Ireland, decided that the PPS should look at the decision to prosecute independently of this. Okay. So he had referred it, um, based on our application for a fresh inquest, to the PPS and he said, no, I don't think this is a new inquest, I actually think this should be a decision to prosecute and he referred it to the then uh, director of the PPS who was Byron McGlory at the time. Mm-hmm. So with mm-hmm. that in mind, that there was going to be a review in the decision to prosecute and the police ombudsman's investigation, the PPS then said, we'll wait, we'll wait until the police ombudsman yeah. complete their report, send us the material, and then we'll take one decision rather than two. So we thought that's a fair enough process. We thought in 2017 that we would have movement quite quickly. Um, unfortunately, it took to the 9th of May this year for the PPS to come back and say that there would be no prosecution. Um, in 2021, the officer was interviewed under caution um, about these offences. So, you know, the family mm-hmm. were hopeful, hopeful that yeah. this would go to the magistrate's court and then the Crown Court and that a court would determine what actually happened and give them some answers. Um, following the 9th of May's decision not to prosecute, the PPS offer the family the opportunity to have it reviewed by someone independent of them. Yeah. And that's an option open to all families when there's a decision not to prosecute. The family obviously took this up. This is ongoing.
0: Okay.
1: Um, and uh, we're waiting on that decision. All right. Okay. Um, and as well as that then, when this is completed, the police ombudsman should release their findings. Yeah. You know, the family want the report because they say that this will give them the narrative of what happened, what the police ombudsman investigated, and answer many of their questions because the family have never had their questions answered. Yeah. They haven't seen all the scenes of crime photographs. They haven't even seen all the statements about Colin Marx's death from the police. So you can understand how a family can think that there's more to this, there's yeah. more answers that we need mm-hmm. in circumstances where they're being told, but we're withholding some of the material from you, you're not getting all the statements. Mm. So for them, from a family point of view, um, they're saying that all we want is the truth, Yeah. but we want to know everything, we want to see everything, we want to see the forensic reports, yeah. we want to see mm-hmm. the medicals, we want to see what happened to Column after, because Colum lay in a field and Down Hospital was less than a two minute walk away. And it took around 30 minutes to get him to hospital. So could he have been saved if they had have moved quicker? Mm-hmm. You know, And all these questions remain unanswered. People yeah. have said different things, such as they've seen police officers dragging him out of the field. You mm-hmm. know, and for them, that's horrifying to think that their mm-hmm. brother, that their son, mm-hmm. was dragged out of a field by officers and thrown in the back of a Land Rover and mm-hmm. taken to the hospital. Why was an ambulance not there? It was yeah. two minutes away. Mm-hmm. So why could an ambulance not come? So all these things know for any family
0: for any family and there's many families unfortunately you know and going back years the, these incidents happened so long ago and they're still you know are very prominent key questions that remain unanswered as you say and I'm wondering then we might refer back to that in a little bit but just about the NI, the, the legacy bill on that and how maybe that might impact that case I'm wondering and also cases like that and just for listeners um, we have spoken about the Northern Ireland Legacy Bill before but there have been changes or kind of progress i guess recently it was introduced in may of 2022 a key vote took place i think on the 18th of july wasn't it this year in the house of commons and, and this bill offers a conditional amnesty to those accused of killings Um, you know uh, and on many of those cases would be represented by phoenix law and different firms like you as well, uh, like phoenix law that do human rights here but the proposed legislation has received opposition you know from families across the board in northern ireland um And it looks like this bill, I think, if I'm right, might become law, I think, um, based on the vote. So just on that, in respect of the case that you just spoke about, what are your thoughts, Gavin, on, on this legislation, firstly? And also, you know, can you convey some of the feelings of your clients, you know, and the victims who might be impacted by this? And if so, what lies ahead for these families? You know, how can they proceed with seeking justice and accountability for what happened?
1: So strangely, the one thing that actually unites everybody on this island is our, all, uh, is our yeah. opposition to this bill. So whether you're a Unionist, Loyalist, Republican, Nationalist, even in the south of Ireland, everybody is against this bill. Yeah. So for once, we're actually united on something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and unfortunately, it's on the Tories. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, it seems everybody is um, against this bill because it offers too much and also not enough to families. So again, the, the families are the forgotten victims of the troubles. They're the, the bad constituency or the constituency that's underrepresented. Um, you know, I think this is a support our troops method by the Conservatives in order mm. to shore up their own constituencies. Mm-hmm. I don't think they really take account of the people here. I don't think they actually care. To them, we're probably this wee part of an island over there that somehow is stuck to them yeah. and they can't get rid of us. I don't believe that they have our interests at heart. I don't think that they're entering this process in good faith okay. in order to give victims the truth. Um, from a lawyer's point of view, from my point of view, the idea that you would stop someone having access to a court offends me. It offends everything I stand for. And I suppose the whole point of doing law and you know working in the law and yeah. being a lawyer is to say to families, well, though the court is blind, you know that, mm-hmm. that, that famous statue with the her eyes covered, yeah. you know the scales of justice being mm-hmm. held up you're saying that every day you go to court, you will have the same access. You know, you, you'll you be entitled to access to court. Or if, if politicians let you down, we will challenge that in yeah. court. So the idea that this bill will come in and say to you that your loved one died 20 years ago, new evidence has come to light, you can't take a civil case. Your loved one died 20 years ago in a car crash, new evidence comes to light, you can take a civil case. Mm. You know, your loved one was murdered, so you can't have your inquest. yeah. But your loved one died in a car accident, but you can. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference? You know, the difference is that they don't like who maybe carried out this murder or they feel they have to protect their soldiers or someone like that. And I look at it and I think that offends the very administration of justice and calls into question the rule of law. And for anybody to be supporting it is offensive. I can't understand how... Yeah,
0: and people who have been vocal about it, and I'm not necessarily talking about the government, but just some people who have um, weighed in on on it will say, well, look, you have to draw a line somewhere. And, you know, you can't keep dragging these families through whatever it is, the inquests and all of these issues. But surely that's up to the families to decide. And I always find it very kind of unnerving to hear that type of, you know, well, sure, just draw a line under it and we need to move on. And you're thinking... But that's not for for any of us to say. That's for... Those who are actually seeking justice on individual cases, you know, it's easy to lump all of these cases in together under legacy. But these are individual families who've been affected in different ways. Um, and I know they fall under the kind of same you know process, I guess. But, you know, I just think the opposition and the government's um, vocal on it in, in the sense that they believe this is a fairer way for the families. And, you know, this um, makes everything easier for the families from what I can see when they're supporting the bill.
1: So when I look at it, I think that if we all had entered these processes back in the nineties or two thousands in good faith and provided the documents mm. to families and provided them yeah, with the inquests, be in a then place, yeah. we would be in a different place. And Absolutely. You, but you look at it and you think that, you know, these processes are being put in place now, or these court challenges mm. are coming as a result of inaction by the government and the underfunding of yeah. inquests. The under uh, the inquests had to be challenged. Mackin challenged them and won the case. Mm. You know, th- otherwise they wouldn't have been funded. Inquest had to be granted. Cases had to go to Europe. So in British other words, we shouldn't
0: need to be doing this. Not like this should have you know, started a long time ago in a fair and you know administrative process as in any type of action that's taken.
1: Yeah, if the MOD and the PSNA yeah. had have funded their yeah, disclosure yeah. obligations years ago, we would not still be waiting on documents. Like mm. inquests have stopped at the minute because documents aren't being handed mm. over. They're saying that they don't have the resources to do it. The police are saying well, we have one person doing research and and doing redactions and we will provide these in due course. Mm. But had they properly have resourced them at the time, had the police ombudsman been able to employ enough people to carry out investigations, Mm. a lot of these things would be over. So families are left waiting. It's not because they wanted to wait. Do you know, for instance, in 1992, I represent families in Kulku. It's uh, about 15 miles from Uri. Um, It's in South Down. Um, People were gathering together for the South Down darts league competition so there was going to be a darts competition between two rival pubs and they were going to kind of hold it halfway between in Kilcoo and County Down mm-hmm. um, people had gathered Susan Traynor worked behind the bar John McAvoy was working behind the bar Susan Traynor decided that before they would start the night the busy part of the night around 9 o'clock around 8pm she would drive into Castle Elm, which is 10 miles away or less and she would buy everybody chips that was working including the owner Peter McCarthy so off Susan went to get her chips, she grabbed Peter's car keys, she drove in, she was stopped at a checkpoint by the UDR and the army, members of the RUC, she drove into Castlewell and she grabbed the chips. She came back in, um, past the checkpoint, waved on through, over to the bar, dropped the keys at the counter, the chips down for everybody, everybody's eating the chips. And she says, she says, before people come in, I'm going to put my makeup on, you know, in case, you know, probably a wee bit of vanity, a wee bit of, you know, doing herself up because, you know, all these people are coming in, they don't know yeah. where and off she went into the bathroom to do that. Um, at 9 08 pm, gun, two gunmen entered the pub. Um, Peter McCormick was standing at the bar. He was shot dead with a shotgun. Uh, three other people were seriously injured. Patrick Ribbon was 18 years old. He was standing at the bar having pints. His mum had dropped him off and went into Caswell to see her sister. Um, the gunman shot him, but then stood over him and shot him three times in the back. He was seriously injured. Um, Patrick's life has never been the same since mm-hmm. he suffers severe post-traumatic stress every year coming up to the anniversary his post-traumatic stress gets worse because he starts reliving it these people are stuck back in 1992 john mcavoy the barman narrowly missed being shot the bullets actually stayed in the mirror in the bar for years as a reminder to everybody what happened here they replaced it years later with a plaque to the deceased that died that day um, in 2016 the police ombudsman then released a report on the murders at the Heights Bar in Lachan Island on the 18th of June, 1994. A lot of people will have heard of that attack Mm -hmm. because six people died watching Ireland play in the World Cup. Um, In that report, it said that all these cases are linked. It's linked uh, to the murder of Jack Keelty, Patrick Keelty's father, Father. on the 25th of January, 1988, Mm -hmm. and to uh, the attempted murder of a man called John O'Rourke on the 11th of January, 1986. The same people were responsible for all this. And in 1989 the RUC knew who they were. So by 1989, they had their names. They had raided uh, an orange hall in 1988 in Clark. They uncovered a weapons find, and they also uncovered photo montages of alleged Republicans. Um, those photo montages showed the owner of the third Fourth, along with Lachlan McGinn, who was talked about earlier. That was the Kilku,
0: the third Fourth, yeah. Yeah,
1: and uh, what happened then was silence. In 1992, the families suspected two years later that um, these cases were linked to Loughin Island, but nobody ever came and investigated. They actually went to the RUC in Newcastle on a number of occasions and said, what's happening? Who's being arrested? And we're told to go away. So the families were left from 1992 in the thoroughforth until mm. 2016 waiting to know what happened. And they weren't expecting even the Loughin Island report in 2016 to include them. So when that happened, I started writing to the police every day saying, when are you going to start investigating this? Quite clear that there's serious allegations of collusion. What's going on? Why is there no investigation? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. And I sent those letters, probably for a year, every two or three weeks, on behalf of each one of the victims. Eventually, then we took a judicial review challenge mm-hmm. um, against the PS9 for their failure to investigate serious allegations of collusion. At the same time, the film No Stone Unturned came out. It also mm. it's available on YouTube if anybody wants to watch it. But it also then highlighted who the suspects were, how they were known to the police, and how for a number of years in that group was an undercover agent who was supplying information, including prior to the attack on Loughan Island. So we said, with this all in mind, there needs to be an investigation. Unfortunately, with litigation, when you're a lawyer, sometimes other cases overlap, and cases are held yeah. back and stayed pending the outcome of something else. So our case was stayed for a number of years pending the outcome of Supreme Court cases based on Article Two of the convention, and how that would be implemented and mm-hmm. how that applies um, applies here, especially in relation to cases that were prior to the enactment of the Human Rights Act and whether then there can yeah. be an investigation. So last year, the, pl- uh, the court found that there was a breach of Article 2 and 3 and there was a failure invest- to investigate that the police um, should now investigate what happened to John McAvoy and we have waited the police has contacted us twice now. The first time they contacted us to say that they are going to investigate, which we welcome. (laughs) And the second time they contacted us to say that they would meet with John McAvoy but not with the rest of the survivors. So, of course, we're a a group. Um, We represent the group. And all of them want to meet. And um, we feel like the police are now buying for time because the legacy bill,
0: Mm. even though there's
1: been a breach of Article 2 and 3, will stop this investigation. So those families... Have waited from 1992 with no contact from police. The police are finally, through the action of the court, going to do something about it. And the legacy bill will come along and say, nope, no investigation. Yeah, that these was suspects yeah. will get away with it. And why should what, you know? How
0: frustrating! That. How God, it's infuriating. But that, that's what I was thinking. What would happen if cases, you know, have come so far, and how the bill will affect, or when it becomes, if it becomes an act, I guess, in law, how that will affect these cases because they're. 20 years you know what I mean and then to reach this level as you say and then to be told no
1: yeah no this will stop so That's the families are left left again with wanting the truth finally getting somewhere feeling like they're going to get somewhere and then nothing oh again God. a number of legacy inquests that we act in the Fox and McKearney inquest for instance uh, Bernie McKearney her husband was murdered in the Moy uh, in a butcher's uh, a couple of months later her parents Charles and Teresa Fox were murdered at their home by loyalist paramilitaries it was the same group again it was billy wright's group that everybody talks about um the, there was a spotlight where one of the suspects confessed to having received ruc material we know in the link cases that there was vz 58 weapons used and um, these weapons were imported with the help of mi5 and we know that uh, a lot of members of the udr were actively taking part in this mm. we know that minutes after the um, murders that the seeing You the names of those responsible, but did nothing to take them to justice. So, at the minute, you know their inquests have started. Uh, they've been delayed because the PSNI and MOD won't hand over all the papers, yeah. And we have to have them completed before April next year, with them restarting hopefully in December. So a lot of families are rushing and hoping that their inquest can start in before December before
0: this comes in.
1: Before yeah. the start stops yeah. it in April, and they've been waiting thirty years.
0: April next year. Yeah. Wow. And we know how slow these things are anyway. So that's the added pressure is really um, unthinkable. Wow. Well, look, we mentioned Colin Mark's case. And of course, this that case and many of the cases that you just spoke about and others that you're working on that we haven't mentioned will be tied in around this legacy bill. And the bill, of course, as I mentioned, was debated in Parliament. Um, and it's in this context, Gavin, that we can go back to, you know, our elected member of Parliament Mr. Ian Paisley Jr., who made such disparaging remarks about you and your work on Colin Mark's case uh, was described by him as vindictive and offensive. Um, big words. What has your response been to this incredibly personal attack by a Member of Parliament?
1: I always think of Members of Parliament, as, as you hear on TV, as the very honourable gentleman, mm-hmm. Mr. Ian Paisley Jr. Um, personally can say what he likes. He's protected by parliamentary privilege. The idea is to protect members in the House so that they're free to debate things. I don't think it was ever intended to permit personal attacks on members of the public, or particularly lawyers or solicitors who advocate on behalf of their clients. I think Mr Paisley is well aware of what my role is in this case. Um, I believe that sometimes people make certain noises in order to attract attention. I don't know whether he expected as much attention out of I this. I it. But, you know, I suppose when you're in that, you know, melting pot or that chamber or that, that place, you know, words can, you know, you can say what you like and th- there is no um, action that I can take personally against him in order to clear my good name or my yeah. reputation. But at the same time, you know, to describe me as a snake oil salesman or someone who sells false goods or, you know, it's, it's a to imply snake that... snake oil salesman. It's oh. part of a, a long-running attack by members of parliament and lawyers. Yeah. You know, Petraeus is dishonest. It feeds into that, yeah. We're fat cats. We make loads of money yeah. out of this, you know. Hmm. We're there for money. We, we give people false hope, you yeah. know. It doesn't matter who you are, you know. And I suppose it's part of a greater attack on, you know, this Trump-type, Boris-type... Attack on people who are doing normal jobs. It's the same in order to try to get rid of migrants and boats, or you know, it, it's it's all part of mm. taking away rights because those who actually advocate for rights, if we start criminalizing them, or ruining their good name, or you know, it, it's vindictive. It, mm. it 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 shouts at, you know you shouldn't be doing this, and you know it it hopefully will not turn public opinion in a certain way, but it can lead the public to think. What are they doing? Those rich lawyers again, you know, they're giving us Absolutely. all false hope. You know, if it's not, it, it's their fault. It's the immigrant's yeah. fault. It's the family's fault. It's, it's not us. We're not, you mm. know, so it's slowly a part of society now that's creeping in where, yeah. you know, we're all being damaged or we're all, our reputations are being brought into attack. Or, Absolutely.
0: You know? And it's an ongoing narrative that we've noticed particularly in the last couple of years I, I, America I think it's been ongoing for quite some time. There were a few remarks in Ireland but it seems to be primarily focused with this Tory government that it's, um, I'm not just Tory members might I add, but um, members of Parliament and of course the media as well with these ongoing attacks. But just, I mean there has been widespread condemnation from many organisations and individuals about this particular incident and this attack against you and your work. And the Law Society of Northern Ireland of course Released a statement again they've already had to do this but it condemns such attacks on lawyers um, you know like yourself working on these cases um, support also came, gavin from legal academics i've seen politicians of course your peers and colleagues and um you know in the legal community as well as your clients like eugene reevey i read an article that um he was mentioned in where you know you also represent him and he was wrongly accused by ian e. paisley senior, um, his junior's father, if I can say that right, of carrying out one of the worst atrocities in the conflict. Um, Firstly, I suppose, um, how have you received, you know, the condemnation of this? Um, You know, do you feel supported by your peers and the legal community? And also, uh, it's a stupid question, but have you received any level of an apology <laughs> the um, answer to that?
1: <laughs> I don't expect ever to receive an apology for this. Mm. Um, I, I always think an apology is welcome. If Mr Paisley wants to contact me personally, meet with me, come see what I do, come mm-hmm. talk about what he said, hap- I will happily receive him. I'd receive anyone. You know, People can say things in the heat of the moment, so you know, apologies mm-hmm. are always welcome. I don't really particularly... Care what he says, but if he wants to apologize that's fine. Um, I actually think on this occasion, the media were fully supportive and behind me, which was very welcome. You know they were quite rightly offended by what was said. Mm-hmm. It was very welcome that my colleagues that I work with supported me you yeah. know straight straight out sure. um, that that's always welcome. Um, I have a strong family and friendship group around here. They were all supportive, some were even jovial about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I unfortunately had to go to a wedding last week where even the DJ was talking about it. (laughs) You're kidding. (laughs) So, um, you know, I suppose like everything here, you know, we have a good sense of humour and things can be um, laughed off as well as taken very seriously. Mm -hmm. And sometimes dark humour is welcome in this jurisdiction, Mm -hmm. especially where people have suffered so much. But, you know, the reality is that it is a serious allegation to make against someone. And at any time, somebody could be attacked. You know, I'm not saying Mm -hmm. I will be attacked, But we have seen instances where people have been attacked and we don't need that. We don't need people targeting us for the work that we do. You know, we are a profession. We're a professional body. You know, there's regulations in place. If someone believes that I'm a snake oil salesman, make a complaint (laughs) to the Law Society and let them investigate it. You know, and I think my name will be vindicated as for the work I do. I think so. But, you know, it only takes one one person.
0: It does. I mean, that's pretty clear and, you know, you can take it in your stride. But I guess what I wanted to speak to you about as well was, you know, the the nature of these slurs and attacks, not just on you, um, but uh, on lawyers, judges as well, have been at the receiving end of it. All levels of the ju- judiciary—it's very concerning, and particularly here in Northern Ireland. We just need to think of Rosemary Nelson, Pat Finnucan, who we've already discussed on on this podcast, who were subjected to campaigns of absolute vilification um, and slurs as a result of their work before they were murdered. And we did have Professor Colin Harvey um, on this podcast before from Queen's University, who endured horrific abuse online and because of his work you know and I'm sure you Gavin know many many other people within the profession who have been either targeted directly or indirectly you know because of who they represent or their work. Now the Pat Fanukin Centre in relation to your case commented that words can be lethal and though it is not suggested of course that this was Mr Paisley's intention the centre comments that it was to abuse parliamentary privilege to denigrate the reputation and professionalism of a very diligent member of the legal profession who is doing his job. So in your opinion, I suppose on a wider level, how damaging and how reckless are, let's call them attacks, because they are on lawyers and those within the profession?
1: Oh, well, look, I, I believe it is an attack. You know, it is an attack. It, it's there to damage me and damage the work I'm doing and perhaps to betray uh, the work that us lawyers do as something other than what it is, and it's just work. You know, mm. r- Regardless of what case we take we work in our clients interests we take instructions we work on those and we make sure that you know your rights are protected when we represent you you fall under our care as such when we start working for you whether it's in the police station whether it's in the prison whether it's in an inquest whether it's um you coming into the office having fallen on the street yeah you know it's our job then to represent your interests it's not our job to talk about the wider society issues it's not our job to take a view on Who you are, what role you might have played Mm -hmm. in the conflict. It's not our job to say that this is an innocent victim, this isn't. It's our job to represent the interests of our clients, and we will do that without fear or favour at all times. But we are looking at a time now where there seems to be a rollback on rights, and with that rollback on rights, there seems to be attacks on those that are standing up for them. We've seen in England now that there's a bill that's going to take away the right to protest. We've seen you know, the immigration bill, you know, poor people who are dying on boats um, coming across to try to get refuge somewhere where they feel safe, being told that they're going to be sent as far away as possible or that our borders need protected. The reality is there's plenty of room on these islands for everyone. um, And these people are affected the most in the world right now. They're looking for refuge. They're looking for help. You know, it wasn't so long ago that people on this island were looking for help, and we mm-hmm. should remember that we should be welcoming them. We, you know, and we see in the south, especially at the minute, an attack on, you know, homeless refugee people, and this idea of this institutional racism that's now being developed. And the reality is, they're they're blaming the wrong people. Yeah. The cr- the, the cost of living crisis down south mixed with the housing crisis, is a fault of government policy. It's not a fault of those who are seeking no. refuge from war or from any other country that fails to adequately protect them. And we should be welcoming them. We should be making room for them. If circumstances don't allow them to have a house or for people not to have houses, we should be looking to get rid of the governments that we elect, yeah. not the people that are most marginalised or, or f- fleeing from any, any place mm-hmm. that doesn't welcome them. We shouldn't be trying to send them back there either. You yeah. know, it, it's, not, it's not good. It's not who we are as a people. And I think people need to remember who we are and where we've come from. Yeah. Um, again, this week, uh, I was in court in Newton-Ords after the court windows were smashed and um, a death threat was issued against the judge for refusing That's the bail. That's right,
0: Judge Hamill, was Yeah, it?
1: Judge Hamill. Yeah. Um, I happened to be there representing a client. There was a heavy police presence. You know, windows were smashed, graffiti was dubbed on the walls. And I looked around and I thought, how have we got to this? Yeah. You know, the reality is the man's doing his job. I don't care who he is. He's doing his job to the best of his ability. In circumstances where our clients, many of whom have been refused bail, where that happens, there's ways and means to deal with it. You have a course um, which includes appeals. You go to the Mm -hmm. high court and you set out your case. You should have faith that your lawyers will be able to set out your case. You don't need to be issuing people with death threats or making derogatory comments about anyone. And attacks like that is an attack on all of us. It's an attack on society here. And it's an attack on the peace that we've built. yeah. So it shouldn't be happening in this day and age. And I don't think anybody is in support of these attacks continuing.
0: No, I don't think so. And I think um, what we certainly don't need is high profile people in a position of power as such to encourage this. And I'm not saying it directly encourages behaviour but it can and we've seen instances in England where it actually has directly encouraged attacks and threats on lawyers So, and this podcast obviously came about because of that you mentioned immigration lawyers I think they're the main group when you think of um, this kind of marginalisation so not only are their clients asylum seekers marginalised but it almost seems that As their representative, there's an attempt to marginalise them as well, which is very, very dangerous and a complete um, undermining of, of the rule of law itself. And I wonder what can be done about this. I mean, it seems to be almost monthly, whether you hear it here, you know, across the UK, in Ireland as well, these attacks continue. And the only thing I can think of is, you know, I mean, the legal community coming together in some way. But I wonder has it gone or can it go as far as the UN in terms of, you know, their special rapporteur on on lawyers and, you know, people working within human rights who, who do need protection? How far can we take this or how, in your opinion, can we stop this from happening?
1: I think one of the best ways to stop anything from happening is education. Mm-hmm. It's to set out your stall fairly and clearly. And, and, and I hope nobody, because of what happened to me or what happens to anybody, would be put off by coming to the law yeah you know working in your clients interests and achieving something for them is one of the most rewarding jobs you can do Mm -hmm. you know regardless of what mr paisley has said about me i would like to look back whether how long or short in my career and say well i've achieved this this and this without this those people would be less well off there'll be some people that i may not ever be able to achieve something for and some people will hate me because i didn't get them the result Mm -hmm. in court that they wanted you know and i understand that's you know, part of what we do mm-hmm. but what I want to look back on in my career is not how many people did we make suffer, it's how many people we helped Yeah. and you know years from now you could be sitting looking back on history and it will be history because yeah. your past is obviously the history <laughs> that you've lived and you would like to say well I helped that family or this or that and you can look back and say well we've achieved something so what we do is rewarding and you should take pride in what you do yeah. and I hope that anybody that does listen realises that you know the law is a good thing you can use it to your advantage some people say you can weaponize it i don't believe it's weaponized but you can use it to advocate on behalf of your clients and to advance their cases especially in circumstances where public authorities or governments say you're not getting that or this is wrong or we're trying to give ourselves as much power as possible and stop you lawyers coming in and interfering with the separation of powers so instead they're going to try to separate the lawyers out from that and that's what's prevalent in the immigration bill or in the legacy bill. You know, you lawyers stay out because you only get in the way and you stop us from doing what we want to do. Yeah. And that's probably one of the key cornerstones of the separation of powers is sure. that we're here in circumstances where government fails us or where they make a decision that affects people who can't otherwise stand up. And we step in then in order to try to hold the government to account and to make sure they're doing their job in the mm-hmm. best interests of the citizens who elected them.
0: Yeah, sure. And talking about that, I mean, we're talking there maybe him, um, what happened to you and other lawyers and the discussion of this, I would hope that it's never a deterrent, you know, for people who want to consider working in your line of work. Um, and I know that you actually work on the C- Queen's University um, in Belfast part. Pathway project, um, in terms of encouraging young people, you know, to get into law and letting them find out more about that. But what would you say to graduates or those who are interested in working in human rights or becoming, I mean, activist lawyers? We can <laughs> refer to the term, especially in your case, and um, that kind of legal activism that you um, and your firm currently, um, you know, work on. What would you say to people who who do want to follow in your footsteps? And you know, what's your response been from graduates looking to get into law?
1: Well, so the Pathway Project is a project for those from working-class backgrounds who wouldn't otherwise have access to the law or feel that the law wasn't for them in a career Mm -hmm. choice. Um, It's a great programme by Queen's. They bring them for a week to Belfast. They stay in the Queen's campuses. Um, They stay on the grounds of Queen's and they get access to the courts. They get access to speakers. They go and visit a number of law firms. Mm -hmm. And uh, every year for the last number of years, myself and Maria McCloskey. I think she's been yes, on this Maria, podcast. Yeah. And um, other people, it changes each year, come and give a talk to them about access to law and they're coming to the law and what we have done. And we give yeah. them a background as to who we are, that we aren't, aren't the children of judges. We aren't the children of uh, lawyers or anybody of high profile. Mm-hmm. You know, we come from working class backgrounds like them and that we have made it in the law and this is our story. Yeah. So we give them that insight into the law and say that, You know, this isn't just for the lawyer's children. This isn't just for Mm -hmm. um, someone who's got friends in high places. This is for everyone, and we try to encourage those people to come to law. So it's a very rewarding thing. Um, What I would say is law, I suppose, I I didn't set out initially to do it. It wasn't my, you know, I, I probably was intimidated in day one of university when I looked about and people talked about their barrister fathers or their solicitor grandfathers or uncles or, you know, their there are great connections in the law I probably was a bit intimidated because I hadn't done the required reading I wondered (laughs) how these people knew so much Um, but I looked around and I I probably was a bit intimidated because you know my probably own self esteem or self confidence wasn't that I could be a lawyer or that I could do this it was more so that how have I ended up here but I'll give it a go (laughs) you know and I never had any urges or graces and thought well you know I have interest in this and this but you know if you had put a a probate in front of me I probably would have fallen asleep or made a lot of mistakes Mm -hmm.
0: and been there? there would have been
1: all the red <laughs> pens through it that uh, the managing partner or the person in charge of you would have put through. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, and I wouldn't have said my grammar or my English or anything was, was so good that, you know, you can't make it in the law. You know, the reality is mm. um, what, what, what works for me is I can go into a police station and I can advocate on behalf of a client's mm-hmm. uh, rights. I can set out what the case is. I can see the case and I, I can work effectively in that, the same as in a civil case. You know, a tripper is no different than a high complex civil case if you know the process. Um, Now, you may need other medical reports or more, but the pleadings remain the same depending on the court. Mm -hmm. So these are processes that can be learned and you don't have to be the expert in every single area of law. And actually, the more I do law, the more I know little. (laughs) I feel that I know (laughs) less and less about the law. So um, my my idea to people studying the law is... um, there's, there's the studying of the law which is passing a certain amount of modules and, a, and in my head it's a memory test and make sure you know these key cases and you know they'll stay with us all whether mm-hmm. it's a, sna- a sna- or a snail in the bottle or anything else you know you'll mm-hmm. remember these for you know or actus reus and all these terms but the application of the law as a, a lawyer is so different and That's I would say true. that yeah. you know the, the people that will relate most to you is your clients mm-hmm. um, if you can have, build up good relationships and I think working in bars and things like that growing up probably gave me more relatable features for clients people
0: skills that you need yeah
1: yeah than than any legal Mm -hmm. textbook ever would so if you can Mm -hmm. talk to your client and if they trust you and they believe that you will do the best job for them i think that's more important than you know all the textbooks that you can read in the world so Mm -hmm. i think nobody should be put off it by their own feelings of who they think they are how they or where they come from or whether they live in a housing estate or a farm, or whether they live in a mansion, or whether they live under the sea, <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> matter. You know, it's, it's you coming and doing a job, people having faith in you, you keep in regular contact with them. And even if the outcome isn't what the client wanted, because yeah. sometimes you, you, know, you don't always win and you don't always have that magic document that you see in films where you hold up and say, you know, I rest my case. Yeah. No, that doesn't happen in the law. The <laughs> reality is you put your client's best case forward based on what you have, you advise them to the best of your ability. Mm -hmm. You know, if if the circumstances dictate you get barristers in, you work together as a team, you know, and you put the case forward, but you will not always win. Some people have a real good knack of winning everything, Mm -hmm. or at least looking that way, but the reality is, you know, you lose as much as you win, but your clients can be assured that if you have their interests at heart and if you build up a good relationship, you know, they will Mm -hmm. not blame you for that. Mm -hmm. They understand what it's like to go into these avenues and they they only go into these avenues because they believe they have a case
0: sure sure that's so so encouraging for people listening and you can just see you and your colleagues commitment and you know you're passionate about your work and your cases is very very evident And um, I'm so thankful to you for coming in here and sharing um, your personal journey, which is so valuable, but also, you know, your commentary is very, very important in what's happened in recent days. And I guess, Gavin, we here all stand in solidarity with you you and your colleagues. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you thanks everyone for joining me today if you like the show please remember to share and leave a review if you have a moment and you can also check out our website www.activistlawyer.com where you will see some blog articles written by our guests and contributors as well as some fabulous activist lawyer merchandise this podcast was recorded in granite podcast studio interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how granite podcast studio can help Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit
1: www.granitepodcaststudio.com.